This is Untold, the Connecticut Mirror's news and culture podcast. We have three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, leave nothing untold. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. We're talking all this season about our rights and our participation in democracy. As the 2022 midterm elections get closer, John and I have been spending a lot of time thinking about what motivates us to go to the polls. Some of those issues, the climate crisis, reproductive rights, gun violence, gay and trans rights, and voting rights themselves are among the most contentious issues in our country right now. The right to vote could be described as the foundation to all our other rights. Yet the process of how we all vote couldn't be more varied or more widely debated. The state of Connecticut has a progressive reputation, but its record on voting access is kind of shitty. In fact, we are one of just four states that doesn't allow early voting. But as we'll hear in a moment, that may be about to change. There's one important thing that you must notice on the ballot this year. So as you check off and do your voting, please remember to look for that question and answer yes. And we'll talk to Stephen Lance from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who tells us why he thinks Connecticut needs a Voting Rights Act. If we're not a democracy, then what are we? And if we're not an equal, racially inclusive democracy, then what are we? You know, so I think this is a no-brainer. That's a bill that will be up for consideration in this next legislative session. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So it doesn't really spell out there what the means are for doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like if I wanted to alter or abolish government, the the idea that most people would take away is, well, you 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 go and vote. That's the whole system. Mm-hmm. I, I, you can alter your government by by voting. We just went through a primary process in Connecticut in which big decisions were made, right? And the largest chunk of eligible voters couldn't take part in the process, mm-hmm. while not even for a moment defending any one of these actions. I know that there are people who marched on January 6th to the Capitol who thought, this is my way to alter the government. Right. I got to do something about this. I got to stop this. I got to stop the steal. And they looked to the founding document to say, I don't know, kind of feels like that was my job. It, it feels to me that what we're really talking about is for who? Mm. Right. So that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, but f- but for who? Destructive yeah. for who? That's right. Right. Whose pursuit of happiness? Because we, you know, 300 million people live in America with all differing opinions. Right. There is no one opinion that is wholly shared by another person as similar as even you and I are. Right. And so we will have dissent and we will have conflict. And so who decides whose pursuit is more just. But but boy, it was a lot it was a lot easier to write a document like this <laughs> when the only difference was between landowner X who wanted to farm in this way and landowner Y who wanted to farm in this way. And they were both, you know, white dudes mm-hmm. who were born in England. Yep. Boy, it gets it gets awful messy if now you've got to consider 
you know, another half of the population, women, <laughs> if you have to consider all the people that you illegally brought across the mm -hmm. ocean and to do your work mm -hmm. and enslave them. It, it, it obviously doesn't take into account all the people whose land you took in the first place and booted them the hell off. Exactly. So that you could pursue this happiness in this way. It, it gets super messy the further away you get from a core of white dudes mm -hmm. wanting to do things mm -hmm. sort of in the way that they were thinking about at the time. Yeah, diversity is messy, isn't it? <laughs> but it's sort it of, is. I mean, it, it is messy if what you are interested in is a homogenous point of view or a homogenous series of points of view, right? And, and that is what was created intentionally at mm -hmm. that time. Leave people out of the room so we can make this as simple as possible. Yes. Right? Simplicity is not just. Simplicity also isn't self-evident. Hi, I'm Bruce Putterman, publisher of the Connecticut Mirror. Our public policy reporting strengthens democracy in two ways. It informs the public about its state government, and it acts as a watchdog to hold that government accountable. For 12 years now, members like you have participated in the work of the Connecticut Mirror through financial support. If you're already a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. If you haven't yet joined in the work of the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. After all, our high-impact reporting is free to read, but it's not free to produce. Please go to ctmirror.org and click the red Donate button today. Thank you. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankosky. If you're busy from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. on November 8th, you better start planning now. Because just like every year in Connecticut, there's only one day you can go to the polls to cast your vote. But as Ali Oshinsky reports, a change might be underway. Somebody say traveling mercy. Grace Baptist Church is back in the sanctuary. It's a sunny but cool Sunday in Waterbury. And it's the first time all summer that folks are inside for Sunday service at this historic Black Baptist Church. Today it's full, at least at socially distanced capacity, and it seems like these churchgoers are happy to be back inside. And as the fall sets in, there's another new part of Sunday service. And you know, as you see my face all the time, this time of year, your vote counts. Are you vote ready? Yeah. There is a registration table. That's Joyce Petaway. She works for the church and is a former alderwoman in Waterbury. She's a big part of Grace Baptist's efforts to get out the vote. The church does voter registration every fall and will help set up rides to the polls on election day. But another big part for Petaway is education. There's one important thing that you must notice on the ballot this year. State of Connecticut is one of four states that does not allow early voting. So as you check off and do your voting, please remember to look for that question and answer yes. To answer yes That's right. Connecticut is the exception and not the rule when it comes to early voting in the U.S. So I think people tend to think that Connecticut's better in terms of rights than other states, but that actually really isn't true when it comes to voting rights. This is Jess Zaccanino. She's the policy counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union of Connecticut. Zaccanino says our state has some of the most restrictive voting laws in the country. 
and a lot of it's due to our pride and joy as the Constitution state. The lack of early voting? That's in our Constitution. We prohibit it there. So that makes it a lot more difficult to change. Um, similarly, with absentee balloting, um, the excuses are in the Constitution. The average number of early voting days around the country is 23, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Connecticut has zero. Between more accessible absentee ballots and early days of voting, most other parts of America make Election Day a sort of deadline to get in your vote. But in Connecticut, it's a bullseye. Either you hit it or you don't. Because of interlocking systems of oppression, um, Black and Latinx people are more likely to be working uh, longer hours, um, you know, less likely to be able to take time off. Um, so it results in less people from certain demographics being able to go out and vote, um, you know, in comparison to the rest of the population. And Connecticut's history of race-based voter discrimination is ugly. Zaccanino said Connecticut was the first state to institute a literacy test, where voters would have to prove their ability to read and write before they could cast their ballots. And this was actually used back in 1956 to dis disenfranchise a number of Puerto Rican men. And the Republican Party in town sued to prohibit 10 people from voting. But that was only in 1956, which is really recent. Um, and it really only took federal action to end this practice with the Voting Rights Act. Literacy tests and the more blatant racist exclusions from the vote don't exist anymore. But like Zaccanino says, the limited time frame of voting may be keeping some folks from casting their ballots. And you can see this in the data. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 68% of white registered voters cast their ballot in Connecticut in the 2020 election. 65% of black voters turned out, while Hispanic voters were even further behind, just above 56%. Churches like Grace Baptist make it their mission to help congregants hit that bullseye on election day. After service, churchgoers chatted in the parking lot. And I asked them what barriers they or their communities experience to voting. A lot of people don't vote because a lot of them got the backgrounds, you know, criminal records and stuff like that. That has a lot to do with some people. I mean, for the most part, if I say to some of my friends, hey, you should go vote, they're like, yeah, let me check where my voting spot is to go vote. I had to have my parents sit down and I would stand in line for them until we was able to vote. I was a state worker and, uh, you know, it was hard for me to get away to vote, you know. And I think they should ease, make it easier for the working people and the seniors to vote. That was Tracy Etheridge, Javen Harris, Gail Bird Fox, and Thomas Pilot. Cars cleared the parking lot and Joyce Petaway took down her voter registration table. Her work of registration, she believes, is only part of what it takes to get the vote out. She says transportation and the voting timeframes are a major barrier for Waterbury residents. But there's another big one she sees. It's a lack of information. Lack of information. She'd like to see the registrar of voters and the city educate voters on their rights. Turnout in Waterbury for the August primary was one of the lowest in the state. Only 7% of registered voters cast a ballot. And the way she sees it, stakes are high. Voters could be missing a lot more than their chance to expand the franchise this election season. We're faced with the fact that our democracy could be lost. That is no plain matter. Right now in Connecticut, the game is about hitting a narrow target. 
But whoever makes it to the polls this November has a chance to make that target a whole lot bigger. John. <laughs> oh, why don't you give us your name okay. and tell us what it is you do for a living? Well, um, my name is Stephen Lance, and I work as a policy counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, and I focus on voting rights advocacy, whether that's advocacy against harmful voting measures or in favor of um, strong voting measures, like one that we see here in Connecticut, to um, increase access to the vote, to the ballot, and to fight against racial discrimination. So talk to us about the one that we see here in Connecticut. It was introduced last session, um, but didn't make it all the way through. Talk to us about it. Okay, so this would be the Connecticut Voting Rights Act. Yep. Um, and yes, last session was introduced, came pretty close, but didn't make it before the session ended. And so when we say a Voting Rights Act, you know, I've, this from the name, you know kind of the shoulders we're standing on, right? It's the, the Federal Voting Rights Act is the inspiration for this. The Voting Rights Act of 65, which really did more than anything else ever before to bring America closer to being a truly racially inclusive democracy, almost 100 years after the 15th Amendment was passed. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is known as the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. At its full force, um, it really was transformational. But since 1965, federal courts, especially the Supreme Court, have kind of chipped away at it. Um, so right now, the full protections of the Voting Rights Act at the federal level aren't available. So some states have started to step into the breach here. You know, California um, started this back in 2002 with a very narrow bill. Um, Washington and Oregon followed. Virginia, just la this year actually, New York passed the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York. And the Connecticut bill is in that same tradition. It basically takes some of the things that worked really well at the federal level, um, makes them even more efficient, and um, targets voting discrimination at the local level. When you talk about the ways in which the Voting Rights Act, the Federal Voting Rights Act was chipped away and mm -hmm. we're trying to gain back some of it. Give us some specificity here. Okay, well, to be most specific, preclearance. Um, preclearance was really, I think most people would agree, the heart and soul of the Federal Voting Rights Act. And what preclearance is, is basically it says certain jurisdictions with a history of discrimination or indicia that discrimination on the basis of race might still be happening. Um, they needed sort of an extra extra set of eyes on any new voting policies before they can go into effect. And the point of this is to essentially stop racial discrimination in voting before the harm occurs. But in 2013, uh, the Supreme Court in an infamous case called Shelby County versus Holder held that the formula that the Federal Voting Rights Act was using to determine which states and local jurisdictions were covered by preclearance they held that it was unconstitutional because it was based on outdated data, according to the Supreme Court, even though there had been hundreds of pages of congressional testimony as recently as 2006 showing the need was still there. But behind that was kind of, I think, a presumption on the part perhaps of some of the, um, some of the justices that racial discrimination was over in America. Um, as uh, Justice Ginsburg um, said very memorably and accurately in her dissent, you know, ending preclearance um, because it is working to end racial discrimination is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Um, and so since 2013, um, without that shield, there's a lot of harmful measures that are going into effect. 
you know, the full protections, the purpose of eradicating racial discrimination in voting, making everybody really have equal access to the ballot, have not been fulfilled. So um, now, how, what does this have to do with Connecticut, I guess, is a fair question. The Connecticut Voting Rights Act includes, among its, you know, several provisions we should, we should, we should talk about, um, a, a version of preclearance that's tailored to state-level supervision of some local changes. So basically, you look at some jurisdictions it would be places where there, where there have been um, past violations of, you know, the Federal Voting Rights Act, uh, other instances of racial discrimination, significant um, segregation in housing, and also criminal justice disparities. So the preclearance formula will look at certain places in Connecticut and say, let's have a second set of eyes before you put that new redistricting plan into effect, before you publish that new polling place map that says who's going to have access to put to voting and who isn't. There'll be a, a, a review by experts in the Secretary of the State's office who will just ensure that it's not going to have discriminatory results. They're not saying that, you know, we think this, this redistricting map or this, this decision about where to place polling places is intentionally racist. They're, we're saying, let's just look at it and make sure that it's not going to have these harmful effects. So what's the plan ahead? The plan ahead is essentially to uh, pass a, an updated Connecticut Voting Rights Act in 2023 and make Connecticut a leader on the on the right to vote. Um, you know, uh, for a lot of its history, Connecticut's kind of followed behind. Um, you know, Connecticut actually, at the time the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, still had a constitutional provision defining eligible voters as white male citizens. And so only when the federal government said, you can't do that anymore, Connecticut did catch up. And also, Connecticut had an English-only literacy test in effect um, until 1970 when Congress banned it. So Connecticut, you know, through its history, despite, you know, th some things Connecticut's doing better, um, it has a progressive uh, reputation, but it has this history of not leading on these fundamental civil rights, voting rights issues, and it can change that. Well, <clears throat> yes, but it has, it has a history of not leading in a lot of ways when it comes to the right to vote. Uh, all the things you just said, absolutely protections that need to be in place, makes perfect sense. But I think there's two big Connecticut stories that we need to tell. One is, compared to a whole lot of the rest of the country, we can't really vote early. Mm -hmm. We can't really vote by mail very well. Not to say that what you're tackling isn't important, but why isn't that the most important thing? Like just making it more available to more people, just like so many other states have. Well, they're both important. I mean, these aren't these issues, these these measures, these changes aren't in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. um, we absolutely, you know, this fall, voters in Connecticut, uh, I am a voter in Connecticut, will have the opportunity to change the constitution to make early voting possible. And absolutely, um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund supports early voting. Um, it's critical. You want to remove barriers to participation. You know, we know that that voting just on election day simply doesn't have the same level of access for people who have caretaking responsibilities, for people who work hourly wage jobs, for people who may lack access to transportation. You know, all of these, these issues uh, in the United States and in Connecticut, they are uh, differently available along racial lines. There are racial disparities in access to these things. So, um, so increasing access to ways to vote is a racial justice priority, absolutely. Now, the Voting Rights Act, I would maybe, maybe say that these are two sides of the same coin. One is increasing access to opportunities to vote, and one is, is adding protections against racial discrimination in voting, or structures such as at-large elections, which are very common in Connecticut, mm -hmm. which under certain conditions can have discriminatory effects on your ability to elect candidates. At-large elections, can you tell me about that? Yes, uh, this is one of the things that I, I get excited about talking about because of, of how much power 
the form of, an, of a local elected government has in shaping who has a voice in that election, right? So an at-large election, let's say you have a town council with 10 seats. If that town council is elected at-large, it means that voters from the whole town vote for all 10 people. If that town council is elected from districts, that's not at-large, that's different. It means that you vote for the person running from your part of town and someone else, you know, the other nine are different parts of the town. So let's say that there's 10 seats on your town council. Let's say the town is 60% white in population and 40% black. So if those seats are elected at large, and if voting in that town is racially polarized, the white majority can really determine who gets elected, not just to you know, six of the seats, but to all 10. Because each of those individual elections is going to be decided by all the voters. Courts have long recognized um, that at-large elections can have a, a discriminatory effect on who has a voice in saying, um, who's going to represent my town, who's going to represent my, my district, my neighborhood. So um, at-large elections are one of the key things that state voting rights acts kind of take aim at. And in California, um, you know, since this law has been on the books, what they've seen is, is dozens of jurisdictions have changed from at-large to districted. And the effect has already been studied because it's been on the books so long, this law, comparatively. Um, they've seen a, a reduction in the racial turnout gap, mm-hmm. and they've seen an increase in the diversity of people elected to city councils. The- and this isn't, by any stretch of the imagination, an argument against that. Mm-hmm. It makes absolutely perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Because Connecticut is the way Connecticut is, you have town council elections for incredibly small towns mm-hmm. that you almost couldn't district up, right? It's more fair to be sure what you're talking about, but there's a structural problem with the way we even conduct town business here in Connecticut. Well, John, you're speaking my language. Um, just like at-large elections are not always a problem, districts aren't always a good solution. Yes. So there are other mechanisms. Um, you know, the, the Connecticut Voting Rights Act, like the, the New York Voting Rights Act, also identifies the potential that in certain, in certain areas, the right remedy may not be districts. It may be what's known as an alternative method of election. Uh, some examples are ranked choice voting and cumulative voting. Cumulative voting is something um, that... Uh, that my colleagues at LDF over the, the decades and, and other civil rights attorneys have helped to implement in places in Alabama. It basically means that however many seats seats are up for election on your town council, there's no districts, but however many seats are up for election, you have that many votes, but you can choose how to allocate them. You can identify, let's say there's five, you can identify five different candidates, you like them all, then it's very much functioning as an at-large system. Or you can choose one candidate. Give that candidate all of your five votes, especially when there's a racial minority of voters and there's racially polarized voting. It enables a fair chance to elect a candidate or elect some you know, candidates to the office. It's just another way of getting at this problem. Districts may not always be the right solution. And again, at-large elections aren't always bad. It's just that they have this potential for discriminatory effects. And frankly, badly drawn districts do too. So um, packing, cracking, all of these mechanisms that um, we've seen over the years that jurisdictions have used to minimize the power of racial minority voters, um, all of these can be addressed. So this bill also, you know, has, it has all of these, um, it, it can takes all of this in, into account. And I feel like by the end of this conversation, you may be a voting rights lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but it's, it's the other thing that's true, Mercy, right, is one of the biggest problems with Connecticut voting in the last couple decades. And it really has disproportionately hit people in cities. 
is that we can't seem to like run elections and not have them be gigantic like clusterfucks, mm -hmm. right? Like there's not enough ballots mm -hmm. in Bridgeport or in a polling place in Hartford. I'll never forget in New Haven, long lines deep into the evening and people trying desperately to go vote and not being able to execute the franchise because things just aren't run very well. Old scantrons that go mm. out when it's too hot out. And in a lot of these polling stations, you're talking about community centers that have no AC, mm. right? And yeah. have to get the scantrons back online. But, but paper ballots that get out in the rain and the ink flows down and they're, and they're useless. useless. What do we need to do about that piece of it? Let me say that some of the um, some aspects of this bill, including preclearance, can help with that. Lines at polling places are often longer in diverse neighborhoods. There was a report recently based on cell phone data that showed that in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods, uh, lines were much longer. So if I have a plan for how I'm going to, you know, where I'm going to put the polling places, what hours I'm going to be open, all these, how many machines I'm going to put at one place, there may be an opportunity for the Secretary of State's office through the preclearance process to take a look and be like, you know, I think this isn't going to ha I don't think this is going to work out. I think this is going to be unfair if you're having fewer machines at this location that predominantly serves black voters and more machines at this other location that predominantly serves white voters. But, but, and this bill also gives opportunities for um, for people to bring cases to challenge situations that are unfair and for a little more involvement by the Secretary of State. There's also another provision. There's a million provisions in this bill. Or there's, let's say there's a good five or six parts of this bill. <laughs> this a, let's say like there's five key components. You know? We talk about preclearance, right? There's causes of action against um, voter suppression, vote dilution. There's causes of action against voter intimidation. Um, there's also increased language access, which is a, another important issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's a central database of election information that can help make things a little more transparent, a little more accessible, so that if I'm a, a, a person living in a city in Connecticut, I can look at, at this data and I can, I can have access to ACS data on racial, racial demographics in my town. I can look at um, shape files of my, of my election districts. And, you know, it's just you, can, you have a little bit more opportunity for transparency and accountability. Um, so that's another thing that, that this bill would come So I want to just pause for a second because mm -hmm. one thing that I know is that everyone at this table can agree on a, a, voting, uh, a voting rights act, right? We can all agree here. But I think once we leave the safety of this studio, we have opposition in, in other ways. And for me, I don't understand that opposition. Talk to me about the kind of um, naysayers or the sort of narrative, counter narratives that you're seeing that push back against this bill. Well, I mean, I may be I may not be talking to the right people. I haven't heard a lot of opposition to the bill. I think that but I totally agree. Um, if you know, if we're not a democracy, then what are we? And if we're not an equal racially inclusive democracy, then what are we? You know, so I think this is a no-brainer. These are, and, and you know, these, these provisions make it easier to identify and address problems, unfairness that falls along racial lines in, in, in our voting system and our democracy. So, I, but this is so interesting. I think what you just said, it gets to the heart of our, of, of our theme for the season, right? Self-evident. Yep. It, you just said, if, if we're not a racially inclusive democracy, then what are we? I mean, mm -hmm. you just made a, a statement of essentially self-evidence of like, yeah, well, obviously we need to be that. And specifically, mm -hmm. uh, at the start of the season, you heard me say, 
people don't talk like that anymore. What you said, mm -hmm. when, when we yeah. hold these truths to be self-evident, and people don't talk like this anymore. What yeah. you just said was, it's a no-brainer. That's what people sound like today. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> but, and, and, and it is a no-brainer, but it's but it's also fundamentally clear that that's just not true. Like, exactly. Like, mm -hmm. we, we don't have a racially inclusive democracy. This bill, and bills like it, is an important component of this. But absolutely, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You, you said you you don't probably talk to a whole lot of people who think that this is a bad idea, but obviously, it it didn't pass in the legislature last time around. So there are people who who don't think it's a good idea. Well, you know, I mean, I can't speak to what's you know what what they might be thinking about that. But um, but last year it wasn't like this came up for a vote and was voted down. Um, there was a lot of support. There were many um, many sponsors behind it, and I think what um, what we hope to see this time is. Even more public involvement. Um, you know, I'm working with uh, my colleagues at LDF who are in the community organizing department, um, and we want to see, and we want we want to help different legislators understand the importance of this bill, um, and hopefully see it pass over the finish line. So I want to know more about you, okay. and I want our listeners to know what brought you to this work in the first place. Well, uh, that is a good question. I think when I was an intern at LDF in, in law school, I remember. Um, doing some research uh, on um, on historical voter suppression, uh, and you know, it's something that that I know I think most people understand this this part of American history is that until the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, in Southern states there were very few registered Black voters. Um, but one of the things that, if you look a little further back in history, you know, where did that come from? That wasn't always the case. In the 1870s, after the 15th Amendment was ratified, and when uh, federal troops were helping to enforce its protections, there were, I think it's something like very close to 500,000 registered black male voters in the South. In some places, a majority of the electorate was black. And so there were, you know, congressmen being elected by biracial coalitions, this promise of what could happen. And, you know, that wasn't obviously the turn that American history took at that time. Um, by after 1876, you know, the withdrawal of federal troops in the 1890s, um, starting with states like Mississippi and Alabama, um, passing uh, constitutions, and then a whole series of little laws specifically with the goal of enshrining white supremacy through the electoral process with, um, you know, with chilling results. Uh, it was done clinically. It was done by legal experts, carefully drafted language, um, and it had exactly the effect that they we're going for. And so that's the power of law to to shape our world, and not even in a metaphorical sense, to literally decide what the world that we're living in looks like. And and I think I think that when I, when I look at the the power that law has to shape things for the worse, I also think there must be a power of law, you know, enacted through by legislators, by, by politicians elected to serve, um, you know, to act to change things for the better, too. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I love voting, right? So the, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 <laughs> had these effects. It, among, many, among the obvious, it also um, helped to reduce the wage gap on the basis of race. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons that might have been, but I, I read a paper in which the, um, the authors argued that the main one was that when all of a sudden somebody has the power to vote me out of office, I can't ignore them. And I think that's the power of, of, um, of democracy to potentially make change. I'm not saying, you know, look how great it worked just recently in our country. I mean, you know, I mean, things, things can go up or down. It's not the case that it's a, an inevitable progress towards 
um, towards a better world. In fact, yeah. it's often the opposite. Yeah. But it can be. Go ahead. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think one one of the things that yep. we're seeing in the in the uh, the season is that it's easy to assume that young people are disengaged mm-hmm. um, because they are. Um, disillusioned and those those aren't the same things right um and so busting my assumption that there is a disengagement there is a a sense of you know resistance is futile because the comfort of the status quo is always Mm -hmm. going to be the choice of the of the elected right um what these young people have conveyed to us is no we're involved we're Mm -hmm. engaged we're just not involved only through the avenues of voting what would you say to young people who say that the comfort of the status quo is something that they refuse to operate within? I, I mean, that's very exciting. That's that's exactly what it should be. You know, I mean, people have this power and they should take it. Um, there's a lot of, I think there is a lot of um, resistance to change from often older generations. The change is going to come from, from the people. It's going to come, including from young people. You know, I think people should, people do. I think people do uh, do understand their power and they do exercise it. And I'm very optimistic about 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 that working out for the better. When we when we remove barriers to participation, we make it easier to stand up for your rights and vindicate them in courts. The people can decide the world we want to live in. They can decide who they want to be in power. And um, and at any time, you know, as a as a person in our democracy, whether you're a voter or not, um, you know, someone is representing you. Someone has a job in which their job is to represent you, and they should hear from you. I think I understand, um, you know, I've heard from some people who are a little bit disillusioned, as you said, about the democratic process. Like, you know, people just, politicians want my vote, and that's all they want from me. Um, but, you know, they, they have a duty um, to do more than just come, come around at elections. Uh, so I think people can communicate their priorities. People can organize. Um, you say, I mean, obviously, you're, you're nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. You don't get involved in elections. Yeah. While you're nonpartisan, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that if we were to allow more people in America to be able to exercise the franchise of voting, it really would change the political system in America pretty, pretty substantially. And I think that's where, the, that's where the opposition lies, right? It's not just about the status quo as we talk about, but it's literally like, you know, there's a whole, there's a entirely entrenched party that just doesn't want to see as many black and brown people vote. We don't see voting rights and, um, and you know, and racial justice as partisan issues. If you look at the um, the Voting Rights Act initially in '65 and each of its reauthorizations, you know it always is a bipartisan project. Um, extensions of the Voting Rights Act were signed into law by at least two Republican presidents in 2006, and that would be uh, George W. Bush and I forget the year, but in the '80s, I believe Ronald Reagan. Um, so, so voting rights, you know, equal democracy, racial justice. This isn't something that is that is up for up for question. And so I don't think there can be two sides on that issue. We certainly don't see it as a partisan issue or approach it from that lens. Do you remember the first time you voted? I remember the first time I voted in a federal election, yes. What did it feel like? I mean, I'm not going to ask you who mm-hmm. you voted for, but, but you did, unless you want to tell us. But, um, <laughs> but, like, what did it feel like? Do you remember? I mean, it's a good question. It felt kind of, it felt kind of mysterious and kind of exciting. Um, I, it, you know... I, <laughs> it's funny to say this, but I was I was raised uh, religious. So, you know, um, we'd go to church, and my dad was friends with one of the pastors. So we'd go back in the back rooms, and you know, my my mom and I would volunteer. And we'd fill up the little communion glasses. 
Um, and all of that, you know, some, somehow it associated with that in my head a little bit when you say it, like, it's like, you're helping to make it all happen. Um, mm. it's very, very exciting. I, I, I remember feeling very, uh, kind of like the way you do when you walk up towards the front of a church sometimes like, wow, this is, this, there's a lot happening. <laughs> this is, this. Did you immediately after filling out the bubbles say, well, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I feel I know that feeling. I feel like I, I do know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah. just keep uh, just that that practice of making yourself one of the people who's deciding how the state is run, how your county is run. How, well, not your county, your Connecticut, but how your town is run. Um, you know, making yourself one of those people, exercising that power, is a is a good habit to maintain. It's like a. It's like like doing a little yoga, like John, because I watch yeah. out for the purple tunnel. <laughs> I mean, you've got a way of talking about the issue with excitement that I think instills certainly hope for me. I'm going to see what's the, what the big deal is at the uh, polls. <laughs> I'm going to see what the big deal is. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, this November, con- yeah. early voting and the con- whether the Constitution allows early voting is on the ballot in November. So that's some serious power that people can exercise by by casting their ballot in that election, as every election, honestly. Thanks very much for coming in and talking with us. Oh man, and, it's and, my pleasure. And best best of luck to you. I I, I appreciate the the work that you're doing, and it'll be interesting to see what actually happens with the Connecticut Voting Rights Act this this session. Well, I, I'd love to come back and tell you what's going on once the session gets <laughs> <is> going. <laughs> and I'm also really appreciative of the zeal and excitement that you bring to the conversation. I've never met anyone so excited to fill out a Scantron paper. So oh, yeah. <laughs> thanks for bringing that to the conversation. It's my pleasure. <laughs> This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You could go to ctmirror.org slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social, drop us an email, and don't forget to send us your untold stories. Tell us what's going on in your community. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who'd love it too. Our reporter for this episode was Ali Yashinsky. Our music is composed by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz. We have digital support from Kyle Constable and Gabby DeBenedictus. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Beth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman.